0: This is Dave Franklin, co-author of Marketing to the Entitled Consumer, How to Turn Unreasonable Expectations into Lasting Relationships, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett.
2: Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help us both discover new ideas so we can better succeed in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast. If I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction and save you time. This show is produced by my marketing firm. We work with manufacturers to help them grow. If you're a manufacturer and are serious about growing your business, check out our guide to lead generation for manufacturers on our website, salesartillery.com, or Google lead generation for manufacturers, and you'll find the guide atop the organic results. And special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Hrefs. If getting more of the right kind of traffic to your website is a priority but it just doesn't seem to be happening, you need to check out Ahrefs, which is an all-in-one SEO tool set that helps you get your website to rank higher in Google, search results, and get a lot more of the right kind of search traffic. We use it here at Artillery. Now, a subscription to Ahrefs can run in the hundreds of dollars per month, but Ahrefs is offering a seven-day trial that gives you full access to every tool, feature, and report for only $7. For details go to hrefs.com spelled a h r e f s.com i'll have more details in a bit and now on with the show today we welcome dave franklin to the marketing book podcast to talk about the book he has co-authored with nick worth and josh burnoff marketing to the entitled consumer how to turn unreasonable expectations into lasting relationships published by Mascot Books. Dave Franklin is a managing director at Winterberry Group, a management consulting firm focused on the technology, data, and services that underpin the marketing and advertising landscape. Dave also spent several years at Forrester Research, initially as a vice president and principal analyst covering marketing services, later as co founder and leader of Forrester's customer intelligence research practice. Dave's ideas and research have been featured in keynote speeches worldwide and in media outlets ranging from the New York Times, The Economist, CNN, and Ad Age, to name just a few. And, interesting fact, he is originally from Ireland, he now lives in Florida, and is a scoutmaster for his son's troop. Dave, congratulations on marketing to the entitled consumer, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks, Douglas. Delighted to be here. So you are from Ireland. You now live in Florida. Nick Wirth is from the United States. He lives in London. I just wasn't aware of this sort of immigration swap that we have uh, going on there, but I I appreciate you all doing that.
0: Yeah, depending on which geography we're talking about, immigration is probably not the subject we want to be discussing, so we won't let you know how it occurred.
2: (laughs) Right. Okay. Oh, that's right. That's right. So as we're recording this, Hurricane Dorian is uh, out in the Atlantic, and it's heading pretty much right for the street you live on. So um, if this turns out to be your last interview, I, I am going to have to re-record the beginning and say this was the last known recording of Dave Franklin before he went missing, uh, or I could just interview Nick Worth, and we could do the interview over again. So, you there know, you go. Yeah, whatever works there. So the question I had, though, in Florida, is it true that it's required by law to have a plastic pink flamingo in your front yard?
0: Uh, I don't believe so cuz we don't have one. <laughs>
2: oh, okay. Well, maybe it's just like a, a tax break or something. We, we like went that.
0: for the gator instead.
2: <laughs> okay. Okay, great, great. So, your book has the the introduction is by Steve Young, the NFL Hall of Fame quarterback, played for the San Francisco 49ers, and uh, I guess you could say you had me at Steve Young because years ago when I worked at Gray Advertising in New York City, at one point I was working on the Topps account, which and they make baseball cards and football cards and hockey and uh, NBA cards and all that sort of thing. And to introduce a new season of football, Cards, we hired Steve Young to be the spokesman, and I spent a day with him. And you know, we recorded the couple of videos, and I'm sure he thinks about me all the time. And, and <laughs> he probably he wonders, you know, what whatever became of me. And my son had just been born, he was six months old. And I got Steve to autograph a picture of him, and he wrote on there, uh, My son's name is Norwood. He wrote, To Norwood, study hard. <laughs> Oh, very good! <laughs> and sure enough, my son one day went off to college and did uh, did real well. So I always uh, always appreciate that. And he was he was just a phenomenal person to to work with. And of course, he signed I don't know a couple hundred footballs to give out to all the different retailers and, and all the sales team and that that sort of thing. But what I wanted to do was share something from his introduction. And in the forward, he talks about the fact that in his NFL career, he Threw 107 interceptions, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> believe it or not, and you know it, 107. It's like Babe Ruth, the great baseball player. He was a, apparently. I think he may be the have the record for the most strikeouts, but he was also one of the greatest hitters too. So keep right. that in mind. And he talked about how when you when you throw an interception. There's a lot of excuses as to well the sun was in my eye or That's or whatever right, right. and and then you'd go to the you know the, the other players were upset and then you'd go to the coach and the coach would be angry at you and you'd always have you'd always have an excuse. So he talks about that and he talked about how you know he just tried to own it. He didn't he didn't offer excuses. He just tried to figure out how not to throw more uh, interceptions. And he said, "Now when there's a problem, I try to identify it, take ownership and figure out how to fix it." And if you're a marketer today, you're probably aware that you have a problem. You're throwing a lot of interceptions every day and every week, sending irrelevant offers, bombarding consumers with retargeting messages for items that they've already purchased, or sending competing messages and offers in different channels. And then he goes on to say, just like handling a wet ball or having the sun in your eyes, there are plenty of excuses you can point to. Data is scattered in places throughout your company, making it hard to get a complete view of an individual consumer. Your business is divided into separate units that communicate independently with customers, meaning they get all manner of competing messages or your communication systems across email, text messages, your website aren't designed to integrate with each other. So it's hard to sync up your marketing efforts. But here's the problem. As Dave and Nick show in Marketing to the Entitled Consumer, today's consumers are like the best coaches. They're not interested in your excuses. (laughs) And like the best coaches, if you don't improve, they'll replace you. They'll take their business elsewhere in a heartbeat if you can't deliver the kinds of experiences that they expect. So explain what is meant by the entitled consumer. And if you could, talk a bit about this research that you all fielded for the book
0: yeah sure so just on uh, steve real quick i couldn't agree with you more probably one of the most uh humble and gracious people i've worked with um you would never know in this day and age he, he sort of jokes that uh you know he's been more successful and had a longer career in business than he did in football but everyone still knows him for what we would call american football where i come from right and yet, one of the smartest minds and one of the most intelligent partners you could have in business, sort of thing. So, um, well,
2: you know, I should add uh, because there's all this Steve Young trivia. He had like a three point six finance degree in college, three point six law out of four, and yeah. a law degree. Yeah, very analytical uh, guy. But you know, just that day that we uh, were working with him, his whole attitude was, and he didn't say this, but you could tell his attitude was, "I want this to be the best videos." i've ever done and that this mm-hmm. company has ever had yeah just incredible and trust me we dealt with other sports celebrities and um let's just say they weren't all like that
0: <laughs> sure well at some point over a glass of whiskey we can uh, we can compare stories because i've got many many others yeah okay uh, to come back to your question though on entitled consumers there's a few different ways to answer that. I'll give you a quick background on um, how we started using the term. And it actually started with Nick and I and a couple of other colleagues at dinner. And one of our other colleagues was actually complaining about Uber and specifically complaining about the icon on the screen that it isn't always where the car is in real life and can sometimes be as much as a block or two away. Oh, man. Right. And we, but the funny thing is we were all sitting around and and sort of agreeing and nodding and complaining. And at one point somebody sort of said, who the hell do we think we are? (laughs) Um, you know, if somebody had said five years ago, take out your phone, tap it about three times, a car will show up. You don't even have to speak to the driver. They'll take you to exactly where you need to go. When you get there, you just say thank you and leave. Um, you don't have to take your your wallet out of your pocket or your, 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 anything out of your purse. Um, if you want your receipt to go straight to your expense reports, you can set that up. Um, however, just one quick thing, the, you know, the icon on the screen might not be exactly where, (laughs) The car is in real life, um, you probably would have grabbed it, and it sort of was this culmination of several conversations we were having. Um, we were speaking a lot about um, Nick and I were having these conversations about just how hard how much harder it is now than ever before to form sort of durable relationships with customers because of their expectations changing they're they're far more empowered because of technology you know all these different things you could see going on and then We were doing a lot of research at the time into millennials and Gen Z. And that Uber conversation sort of was this light bulb where we looked at each other and it was kind of a, hey, it's not just millennials, it's all of us. We're all entitled. And you know, when I'm presenting on stage, I'll sort of rip off the you know you're a redneck when by saying, you know you're an entitled consumer when and You know, if you've ever complained about the speed of Wi-Fi on an airplane or gone somewhere to buy something because where you normally buy the delivery wasn't free or... You know, wondered why it's now taking so long when you're using a chip based credit card to pay and it's taking an extra three or four seconds or, you know, whatever it might be. And the funny thing is all all the people we interviewed for the book, when we started to explain it, they were like, oh, I've got one for you. It drives me nuts when I order from Starbucks and they tell me it's going to take seven minutes and I get there and it's taking nine minutes and, you know, all these things. And it's kind of just it explains in sort of anecdotal terms how entitled we all are. We took that and we sort of went out and we did research with uh, 7,000 consumers, 2,000 in the US and 1,000 each in uh, Western Europe, in France, Germany, Spain, Italy, and the UK. Uh, We did focus groups in four countries and we, we interviewed about 80 or 90 people trying to get a handle on on these consumers. And we basically boiled it down, and there's a lot more detail in the book, but I'll try to explain what is a, a visual representation uh, in this audio medium. But we sort of broke it into two dimensions, what we call hard entitlement, and that sort of manifests itself in people making demands. So think about people expecting control over how the company engages with them or demands things like we had questions in there on what happens when when you have poor service. And these are people who expect to get compensated for poor service. And then there was the second dimension is what we call soft entitlement. And it's, it's related, but different. And this would be sort of it's a little more tr- of a trade off expectations. So I'm willing to share data, for example, to get better service. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I know that companies have that and therefore I expect them to understand my needs. I expect them to, I start to anticipate better service, but know that I can't get that unless I've given something for it. And so we sort of divided up the population into four segments. If you think of those two dimensions on, a, on a, an XY axis, you know, you can take, uh, you know, consulting, you know, classic two-by-two, two, you can't help. It.
2: Yes, and, and by marketing book law, you are required to have a two-by-two by two two by two two matrix, by two, right? yes. So, so we that's the a, first thing I check when a book shows yeah. up here.
0: <laughs> right. So we call we called the bottom left quadrant, now that we're talking two-by-twos, uh, indifference. So these are folks that show limited, hard, or soft entitlement. Uh-huh. And then if they only show hard entitlement, we call them demanders. If they only show soft entitlement, we call them anticipators. And those that show both, we called fully entitled. And just looking at the U.S., and again, the book breaks this down in much more detail, but in the U.S., we, we found about 68% of consumers are entitled in some shape or form, so one of those three, and 28% are fully entitled. One quick other thing I'd sort of point out on that that was surprising and interesting, you know, as we geeked out in the data, the segments didn't map to traditional customer segmentation, so we expected there to be pretty high correlation to age, as like really, you know, I, I sort of mentioned that,
2: right? Like Dave Franklin, you're just talking about young uh, millennials, right? Exactly. That's that's what we expected.
0: <laughs> we were guilty, you know, guilty of assuming the same. But uh-huh. we looked at it across age, income, rural versus uh, urban dwellers, gender, education, and it didn't matter. You know, we're nearly all entitled, other than those sort of indifference, which again cut across and there's differences by country but nothing that was miles away in one place or another you know you might have more of one type in one country than another but the general percentages worked out and so we sort of did a bit of a like let's stop and think this through when we were you know whatever about a third of the way in, into the book and the data came back and we were sort of oh, huh, that's surprising and one of the things that ultimately you know we ultimately turned around and say in the book is if if you can't tell through those traditional methods who is entitled our recommendation is that you have to treat, treat everybody as entitled mm-hmm. and and that means you've got to sort of really rethink how you're approaching Communication and engagement and experience and everything else. And that's the whole basis for the book, basically, is if this is true, then how do you, how do you manage that relationship?
2: Right. Well, why is this feeling of entitlement accelerating? Is it just because of technology?
0: So I think that's a factor for sure. You know, when you think about the world that we live in today, so that Uber example is an interesting one, right? We sort of, I even used it by saying five years ago, this, you know, you would have jumped at this and maybe it's 10 years ago, but whatever the number is. But I think technology has given us more power as consumers. It's also given us more information. So everything from showrooming when you're in a store and want to see how much something costs somewhere else to the flip side of that in terms of what's near me right now that I need something, where do I go get it? The other part of technology is the sort of the fact that we're living these very filtered and curated lives, right? So we decide what we see, what we read, what we hear and everything is on our terms. We're more and more used to to that. When you think about the kind of app economy, how all of these things, I use the Uber example of the receipt appearing in your expense report, you know, there's this convenience that we start to expect. And then I think the other part of this, though, is there's a, a change in buying behavior, too. So, you know, we talk about the subscription economy and, you know, that requires a heavier commitment to an ongoing relationship. Somebody doesn't buy your product and own it. They subscribe to your product and you're winning them back on a, a daily, weekly, monthly basis. And it so I think it's all of these things. And then I think the other thing is we sort of talk about, and, and uh, I'll give Nick full credit for this term because I think it's brilliant, this sort of experience arms race. In the book, we talk about the tr- what we call the transference of entitlement.
2: Yeah. And I think we should talk plenty about that because first off, there may be a listener or two who are thinking, well, this is all great, but you know, you're know, you just talking about Amazon and Uber. I, I, I'm a, the company that sells real products. Well, mm-hmm. <laughs> the and and my competitors don't do it. That is a big mistake to make.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
2: And the reason why is the transference of entitlement, put another way, Amazon's ruining it for everyone. Explain.
0: Yeah, so 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 either ruining it or making it better, right? So as yeah, consumers, probably. it's making it better for us, right? So the transference of of transference of entitlement s- simply put is that our expectations rise based on our best experiences, regardless of the company or the industry that that company is in. So hence I say sort of Amazon is potentially making it better for everyone, right? So when you think it about it in those terms, it means everybody is competing on an experience baseline that is set by Amazon or Disney or USAA or whomever that company is, Tesco, you know whomever it is in each geography, you could point to these companies that stand head and shoulders above others. You, you often see a, a speaker on stage sort of say, what's the first thing that jumps into your mind when you hear the word Nordstrom? And it's amazing in the US to hear sort of 75, 80% of the audience go customer service. Mm -hmm. And the notion of the transference of entitlement is your customer service today has to be as good as Nordstrom's. Your experience has to be as great as Disney's. And it doesn't mean that you have to put the same amount of money into something as they do. We'll probably talk about Disney a few times during this call because... Uh, I can't help it.
2: Well, and we're required by the podcast marketing law. We have to talk about Amazon, Facebook, Google, Netflix, Disney, and there's a few others, but right. we're checking well, all the boxes but, here.
0: But, but I'm you know, I was on my way recently to a a workshop with a company and I was staying that night at a Marriott hotel. And I went into the Marriott app to get the address for the hotel to punch it into my GPS or Satnav app on my phone and I saw this little button that said directions and I pressed it, and it actually popped up from the app with open directions in Apple Maps, open directions in Waze, open direction in Google Maps, all of which I have on my phone. And it's just these little simple things that I now expect other companies when I go to their address page on their website. I now have this anticipation that they should make it as easy for me to get to their property as Marriott did, mm-hmm. and I travel a lot for work. I can be a brand assassin for the brands that i that I uh, use most often, so I apologize a lot to Marriott and uh, and American Airlines. but you know little things like that, like I say, it sort of raises that expectation for every other experience I have when I'm looking for something, and so, yes, Amazon has led me to expect two day free shipping. From every company, you know, USAA, which is a financial services company in the U.S., that's. Yeah, focused. I'm a customer. Oh, you are okay. Mm-hmm. Of course, as a veteran, right? Or, or is, that's or right? Your dad.
2: Plus, yeah. my dad and his dad yeah. were were uh, gen- general. I heard on one of your. Oh famous. yeah, my dad was a general. He was actually on the board of of USAA.
0: Okay. I mean, phenomenal company. And again, I've spoken to that company so many times. I can, you can almost end up in tears at the end of conversations with this company because of their attitude towards their consumers mm-hmm. and their members, as they call them. And, you know, it can be simple things. The government shut down in the United States last year. They suspended overdraft and late payment fees. You know, and it's little basic things that you sort of step away from and go, why doesn't every company do that? <laughs> right. And to your point of, yes, it's easy for... The Amazons, the Disney's, the USAAs. We mentioned Hancock Whitney, which is a local bank in the in the book. Uh, they're based down in, in Louisiana, and during the hurricane, since you mentioned it, uh, during the last major because that's hurricane, all that happens, pretty much. It is. Where, yeah, it's, it's hurricanes, right? Yep. <laughs> okay. No, um, but they brought you know the staff went in, had card tables in front of the bank, and were giving loans to consumers with handwritten IOUs because people couldn't, you know, the ATMs weren't working because the power was out. And it just showed this empathy and um, sort of understanding of their customers' need in the moment that you don't have to be a big multi-billion dollar company to do this. There are things that you can do if you have the right mindset. There's actually very simple things you can do that can really move the needle on raising those those uh, experiences and, and being the driver of those expe- expectations going up rather than having to constantly respond to them.
2: We're going to take a break here, so I can tell you more about hrefs and a really sweet offer they have. If getting more of the right kind of traffic to your website is a priority, but it just doesn't seem to be happening, you need to check out hrefs, which is an all-in-one SEO tool set that helps you get your website to rank higher in Google search results and get a lot more of the right kind of search traffic. We use it here at Artillery. A few of my favorite tools include the site audit. This crawls your entire website and gives a comprehensive report on any issues that may be hurting your SEO performance. And you're going to be surprised and maybe a little bit embarrassed at what the site audit will find. If you're a marketer responsible for your website, you'll want to run this report before your boss does. And if you're an agency responsible for your client's website, you better run this report before your clients do. Another one is Site Explorer. This is where you can research any website, but especially your competitors. One popular way to use this is to figure out your competitors' marketing strategies by studying the keywords they rank for in search results and finding out the pages that bring them the most traffic from search. You can research anything from how fast their search traffic is growing to which websites are linking to them to the pages on their website with the most backlinks. Another one is Keyword Explorer. This is great to have before you create even more content for your site. This tool helps you discover thousands of great keyword ideas and gauge how difficult it is to rank for them, and then calculate their traffic potential. You can also confirm what your potential customers are searching for online to help make sure that you're including the right keywords and content on your site. Now, a monthly subscription to Ahrefs can run in the hundreds of dollars, but Ahrefs is offering a seven-day trial that gives you full access to every tool, feature, and report for only $7. So, Even if you don't end up subscribing, the reports that you can run are a phenomenal value. Seriously. Otherwise, if you've got money coming out the wazoo, hire an SEO firm, give them a king's ransom, but don't be upset when you find out they're using hrefs to run the same reports that you can run. Also, just a bit of medical advice. If you've got money coming out the wazoo, you should probably get that checked. Now, are there other all-in-one SEO tools? Sure there are, and they're good. But in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, there's a link to an article about the nine most important features that Ahrefs has that no other SEO tool does. Check that out. To get the seven-day trial for just $7, visit ahrefs.com, spelled dot com. And now, back to the show. All this uh, confluence of of things that are happening leads to well, what do we do then? What do we do as a company? How well, these these darn customers, these complicated humans, that leads us to what you all explain as consumer first marketing. And I think people might misunderstand that consumer first. Oh yeah, we're all we're all about the customers. Well, not really. If you could explain what consumer first marketing is and. Perhaps as part of that, you could contrast it with like channel first, or sure. or product first, or cohort first uh, yeah. marketing. And why it's um, you, t- you mentioned an arms race earlier. There is going to be this. There, well, I guess there already is this this arms race where y- you can. I think in the book you also talk about there's going to be leaders and laggards. Mm-hmm. It, it's not going to be much in between. <laughs> explain <laughs> right. explain what consumer first marketing is. I think it's really important to talk about that because I still see a lack of it from a lot yeah. of companies.
0: Yeah, so it really sort of flips traditional approach to marketing on its head. And I think when you look at the theory of marketing, if you go back to the very, very beginning, you know, the purpose of a business is to to solve a customer's need. And we somehow got away from that as companies grew because we were having to worry about internal structures and all those types of things. And so you referenced it in terms of, I'll go back to my Forrester training. When we first came up with a term, I questioned it because anytime somebody at Forrester would, would come up with sort of, sort of cute sounding terms, we would always ask one another, would you ever say the opposite? And when I when we first did that, I was like, this doesn't make sense. You would never say, let's do consumer last marketing. <laughs> yeah,
2: but it happens <laughs> right? all the
0: time. But it does happen all the time. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And so if far from being, too obvious. It was kind of the, no, to your point, right, which we mentioned in the book, people take a a channel first or a cohort first or, you know, cohort first is a little better because at least you're putting groups of customers together. Yeah, and you should explain
2: what, what is meant by cohort.
0: Sure. So cohorts are basically groups of customers that look or act in a similar way. And so the extreme of that is, um, you know, you can go out and buy third-party data that that has all these cute names of, um, you know, the soccer moms and the um, tech-savvy boomers and that type of thing. And so it's sort of recognizing that uh, we can create a group of customers, but then we treat them all the same, and we don't sort of go any deeper than that to understand their need. Right? Channel first is very much a reflection of the way we're set up as a business. We have a team that's focused on it could be everything from direct mail to tv and everything in between
2: and when you say channel you mean
0: uh, like communication
2: channel, channel not yes. like
0: a sales channel it can be both right so just oh, okay. just the same i mean mm-hmm. we give an example of the in the book of a of a belgian retail company that does an amazing job of at the point of sale calling up the data that they have on a given customer mm-hmm. and using that to sometimes make recommendations often remind them that they have a coupon that might expire. And so you think about everything that goes into that. Again, there's a mindset of what's important here to the customer. There's the ability in near real time to realize who somebody is and understand what we know about them. And then to tell them something that may be valuable, not to me, the company, but to them, the consumer. And mm-hmm. by, by extension, it's going to be valuable to me, the company.
2: Right. Now you write that marketers are skeptical when you start describing consumer-first marketing. Why is that?
0: I think some of it is, I think it's twofold. I think some of it is, again, it's a a term that there can be some automatic listening that goes into it, and nobody, to, the, to our point, would claim to not put the customer first. I think the other side, though, is that this isn't an entirely new concept, right? So we interviewed Don Peppers for the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Don and Martha wrote about this 25 years ago to mm-hmm. some extent in the the one-to-one future. And so I think in some respects they were probably so far ahead of their time that there weren't the tools and technology to capture those signals and bring all of this to life. Whereas today, as we talked about, consumers are giving us these implicit and explicit signals of what they want, when they want it. You know, they'll, they'll tell us really clearly what they don't want and, and punish us if we don't react quickly enough. And so, you know, that's where we sort of feel like this isn't a, a theory anymore. This is, this is a requirement for survival and anticipate the companies that don't make the shift will be those laggards you mentioned that just get left behind.
2: Yeah. So I want to quote another part from the book here. You say, consumer-first marketing is hard but getting started with it isn't. And then you write, consumer-first marketing is a philosophy that says you'll reach out to people based on what you know about them personally and their situation, not just what you happen to need to sell at the moment. And while it's hard to fully embrace, it's not that hard to get started down this path. Whoa, whoa.
0: What do you do then? Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot you can do, right? So we break down five major areas that you should look at um so it starts with understanding the customer and so that requires an understanding of what data you have in whatever form that is but it's it's very hard to to be consumer first if you don't understand that individual then there's all of those engagement touch points again whether that's a human touch point in at a point of sale at a branch whatever it might be Um, it could be on the phone or it can be a technology whether that's your website when somebody comes to visit or an app or your outbound communication channels. And so thinking about all of those different aspects of engagement with a customer. And we sort of describe that data and sort of omni-channel engagement as sort of a yin and yang of, of relationship. The better you understand the customer, the better you can engage. Each time you engage is an opportunity to learn more. And so they sort of feed each other. And then the sort of major things that anyone can start tomorrow are things like understanding relevance. So yes, that depends on an understanding of your customer. But starting to think about how can we be more relevant to each individual customer. There's the notion of value I referenced earlier. So starting to think about what's actually valuable to my customer and not just how do I extract value from my customer.
2: Oh, that would require thinking about the customer, though. Correct. Correct.
0: (laughs) Well, um, we won't have any of that. (laughs) <laughs> and then the, the, uh, the fifth element of that is what we referred to just so so we could have all uh, all ours uh, was respectful empathy. And the, the notion, I think that Hancock Whitney example I gave is a great example of um, sort of being empathetic to the customer situation in the moment. And so that's sort of how we think about if you want to tackle consumer first marketing, you can start with any of these things. And you can, and we would say should, build all of them over time, but there's no reason to you know, you don't have to build the entire thing before you can start to deliver value. And then we do, I'll just mention real quick, we do have a maturity sort of approach in the book where we sort of talk about what are those, what are the ingredients across those five dimensions you need to get right and, and how do you measure, how do you build? So we tried to make this book as we, we, again, this is one of these things that philosophically we talked about that we wanted this to be both a strategy book, but also, um, have a very practical application. So while it's not a how to, the the last couple of chapters really do dig into how do you bring this to life and how do you you know what are the steps to put in place to you get there
2: you really can get started there's some very specific uh, matrices at the end and specific questions to get started you even talk about how to get buy-in for the organization and we're not going to be able to talk about you know all of that but there were a there were a couple other concepts that I really wanted to talk about because It's going to be helpful for the listener, but also as they try to evangelize in their organizations to become more customer oriented. I get connections from listeners on the on LinkedIn. I'm always enjoy speaking with them on LinkedIn, and uh, but occasionally I get spammed by somebody who's just spamming away, uh, just Mm -hmm. trying to you know, and they're selling things that I don't know that I would ever in my life buy. But at any rate, what I've started doing now is just to have some fun. So I made a, a meme. That has a picture of Gordon Ramsay from – he's that British chef that has the reality TV shows and he's got a real temper. And on the meme, it has a picture of him screaming and it says, is this spam? Because it smells like spam to me. (laughs) And I send it. That's what I respond with. And if you want to see it, if any listeners want to see it, just spam me. Anyway, I think about that when you explain this concept that I'd heard of but didn't, I didn't know much about. It's called the tragedy of the commons. Mm. Explain the tragedy of the commons and how that applies to marketing in the worst way. And it, there's also real risks that marketers are taking uh, as it relates to the tragedy of the commons.
0: Yeah, so it's a really interesting concept, right? And it, it's, it's been around for, for many years. We did, we did not invent this concept, just mm-hmm. to be super clear. It's been around for quite a while. And, and the idea well, like here is... Like hundreds of years, I would think. Correct. Yeah. And, and it was... Uh, actually, no, sorry. It was in the... I think it was in the 1960s. It was a, um, a biologist who came up with this concept. Oh, and, because it
2: talked about uh, people grazing sheep on the commons. Correct.
0: Okay. That's why I thought it was very old. Okay. Yeah, so so commons were, right? So you think back to the Boston Common. And in, in the UK, there are hundreds of places named after commons. And the idea here is that that land was owned by the village. It was common to everybody. That's where the name came from. And as a result, everybody could graze cattle, sheep, whatever it is, on the common. And that works as long as everybody is respectful that if you overgraze, everybody loses out. And so for each individual person that lives on the common, for each one of those to add a single sheep will stick with sheep really doesn't impact the common too much. But if everybody chooses to do that quickly, you're going to overgraze and everybody will lose out. And so that can manifest itself in different ways. So when you think about spam, typically it's not everybody it's, and it's usually not the good actors that are filling your inbox. Mm -hmm. It's the bad actors filling an inbox, but they end up sort of destroying or overgrazing the common such that then we become increasingly sensitive to it and we're willing to put time in to make a meme to send to people to say, (laughs) stop sending me this, right?
2: Right. Um, Well, and actually there was a guy, this is what also brought it to mind, is I sent it back and the guy laughed and said, I'll leave you alone. But I send out thousands of these through a bot and I'm able to get one or two customers a month from it.
0: Oh, that's funny. That's
2: great. <laughs> so, I mean, he was really honest about it, but it that's why when I read about the tragedy of the commons, I thought, yeah, that's that's such a great explanation of yeah. how, or as Gary Vaynerchuk would say, marketers ruin everything. Yes, yeah. So what happens is they make it very challenging. It makes people very uh, active in wanting to avoid these messages, like me making a meme. Talk a bit, though, about how, I mean, you call this messaging overload or over-marketing, Talk about how that really does undermine marketing. For instance, somebody who says, Yeah, I get one or two customers a month from that and I send thousands out. Well, explain what they're missing and the collateral damage that's occurring when companies do that.
0: The simplest version here is it's just an assault on our senses. If you've ever flown into Las Vegas and walked through the airport, there are, or you go to Times Square or Piccadilly Circus, you know, wherever it might be, there are just hundreds and thousands of messages that you are bombarded with there's sight sound smell your body just cannot take it in and essentially we're doing the same thing when we overmarket we are we're adding to that noise and it becomes something that consumers actively block right so you look now at what how consumers i, I talked much earlier on about consumer empowerment we have tools and technologies where we can say no right so we can whether it's creating a bot that will respond or one that will delete, um, there are services that allow you to delete. There are ad blockers. There are mm-hmm. any number spam of spam folders. Things. Yep, that just are the consumer's way of saying I'm mad as hell as I'm not, and I'm not going to take it anymore. Mm-hmm. And so we see it all the time, and and it's been really interesting. We've been doing quite a lot of work recently with companies in the UK who are, you know, since they're still part of Europe. Uh, for now, at least, <laughs> they. Uh, oh, careful! We know, don't want to talk about politics introduced, here. Introduced <laughs> introduced GDPR last year, mm-hmm. and in the US, uh, everyone is is preparing for Nevada and California privacy laws. And just mentioning the UK real quick, talked to a lot of companies that stopped marketing for a period of time, invested in really cleansing their customer databases and and quote unquote list. And in some cases, cut back on their list and, and who, whom they were communicating to by 75%. And, shockingly enough, everything started to get better for them.
2: That's like when um, Procter & Gamble stopped a lot of their digital advertising and the sales started to go up. It just reminds me of that. It was a couple yeah. of years ago.
0: But if, if you reach the right people in the right way when they want to be communicated with with the right message – yeah, you know, That's what we're referring to as consumer-first marketing, and, and it, it matters. It makes a difference those people respond and come back and spend.
2: Right, and remarkably, you urge marketers in your book to send fewer marketing mm-hmm. messages. And there is a very interesting continuum that you all offer in the book, and it's in there a few times. And it's like at one end of the continuum is your friend. Mm-hmm. And at the other extreme is what you call a loudmouth boor. Mm-hmm. I love it. I'm stealing it. I'm sorry. <laughs> you're welcome. I'll tell everyone where I got it from. But it's like, you talk about how, well, would, would I do this to a friend? Or, or would a friend do this to me? Or would a loudmouth boor do that? Yeah. And of course, you know, there's a lot of marketers out there saying, yeah, I know we're doing it, and I'm being told to do that. But you're right that marketing is not necessarily the enemy of a good customer experience. And you talked about the customer experience arms race earlier. But unless marketing is carefully managed, it can be the enemy of good customer experience. Can you give some, some more examples of that? Um, I touched on a few of them when I mentioned uh, what Steve Young had said.
0: Yeah, I mean, to, to a certain extent, I would sort of say the example that you just referenced, the bore versus the friend, let me play that out. And I think we'll bring it to life through that. So the idea here is that you go to a party, you meet this person, we've all done it. And all they want to do is talk about themselves or, you know, enough about me. What do you think of me? Kind of attitude. <laughs> right. um, and when you do, when they do learn something about you, it bounces off them. They don't hear it. They don't care.
2: Or they relate how they, – they whatever you tell them, they relate it back to themselves. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and the next time you meet them, they have no – there's no concept of the fact that you've spoken before, right. that they they should have learned this from you, whatever it might be. Yeah. Versus a friend who you don't need to give – context and background to every element of the story you're about to tell them you know if you go to tell them a story about your brother or your sister or your mother you don't have to explain who that is because they're your friend and they know that stuff and so there's this sort of continuity in of knowledge and there's a familiarity and a context to the entire interaction And ultimately, that's what we're trying to say companies should get to. So I'll give a quick example. Kinopolis, which is a a movie theater company headquartered in Belgium, but they have uh, movie theaters throughout several European countries. They capture a ton of data. They know every movie you go to see because you register in your app. And they know what you buy when you go to the, the theater. Just like Netflix knows what we watch. Correct. So Kinopolis also goes and asks you questions, not every time they interact with you, but a couple of times a year they'll come and, and you're, again, going back to that sort of anticipators. I'm very actively responding to your request for information from me. Now what are you going to do about it? And, you know, it was really interesting. Stefan Klaas, who runs their CRM program, told us uh, this story that there's about 7% of their total database that they email in any given email.
2: Yes, that was very interesting.
0: And what that says is, I know you, you're my friend, I understand that this is going to be relevant to you, and therefore I'm going to speak to you about it in a way that makes sense to you, versus I'm a loudmouth boor. I'm going to send this email to 93% of my <laughs> file. And, you know, if you're not into romantic comedies or horror movies or whatever, it might, you know, whatever other genre it is that, that I'm sending this email out about, if that's not your cup of tea and I, if I... Don't care that I have the information that you've never seen this type of movie before. I'm going to send it to you anyway. That's the loudmouth boar. That's the person at the party who just wants to talk about themselves. Mm-hmm. And so that's what that analogy. And as you said, we sort of deliberately sort of brought that back into the into the the story at several points because it just emphasizes all of these other elements that we're sort of trying to highlight and 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 trying to make it as. Approachable as possible, that everybody has those friends, and everybody has met those you know ugly folks at the parties that they never want to bump into again.
2: Yeah, and also I think there are a lot of companies that are. Of course, we're all humans; are all very self-oriented, and companies are too. And there are a lot of them have short-term financial goals, but there are there's a pressure of just get it out there. You know, get Mm -hmm. uh, make some noise, uh, get out there, and you know someone might come back to them and say, "Well, boss, look, it, are we behaving like a friend or a loudmouth boor?" Mm-hmm. And they may think, "That's all right, it's all right." Well, no, it's not all right <laughs> because yeah. you are um going to be remembered uh as someone that they really don't like. Yes. And uh they're going to unsubscribe and they're not going to want to do uh business with you if they've had a bad experience. So it's uh they're really shooting themselves uh in the foot to a bit. So I want to go back to maybe the doubting is out there because we've st- we've, you've talked about how it's actually kind of easy, it's not that difficult to get started with this cus- consumer-first uh, marketing. But I can imagine there's folks who saying, well, I need a lot of data. I need all the data, and uh, I can't do it without all the data. Well, hold on. You write that marketers do not need a single, fully integrated set of customer data to deliver on consumer-first marketing. <laughs> How can that be? I mean, l- uh, talk about that, and, and please, if possible, disabuse folks of thinking, I have to have perfect data in order to take the first step.
0: Sure, so a couple of things I'd sort of say on that to those doubting Thomases, right? In the last week or so, we've seen the Business Roundtable issue a statement on the, quote-unquote, purpose of a corporation, where the whole notion of shareholder value Has not gone away, but it's now we're now talking about stakeholder value and they talked about employees. They talked about suppliers. They talked about environment. They talked about customers. And so, you know, this has made its way up to the boardroom of the biggest companies on the planet as something that is a significant shift. And I think I'm both cynical and hopeful that that is real. You know, I think if that statement is the end, it's a failure. If that statement is the beginning, it's a huge, huge success. The next thing I would sort of say is, from a personalization point of view, you know, Boston Consulting Group predicts that predicts a revenue shift of eight hundred billion dollars to the one in six companies that are investing to set themselves apart in this experience arms race. Um, so they are predicting a significant economic change in ownership of economic value by focusing on customer experience and personalization and context and all those other things so it's easy to be to to sort of dismiss i think that when we talk about what's required to get there one of the key things we talk about is measurement and the reason for that is you can't sort of stand up and say we should do this for the good of the world you have to stand up and say we should do this for the good of the business and it benefits the world. And so those consumer-first metrics, satisfaction and retention and advocacy are critical, but so is customer value. So is assessing the impact of this on the business overall. And that's how you get that organizational buy-in, and that's how you can start to sort of drive adaptation and optimization inside the organization.
2: Mm. So in our remaining time, I, I wanted to ask about one other concept in the book that sort of surprised me, and that had to do with customer journeys. Can you talk about this consumer first approach to marketing and what the problem is that marketers have or are committing as it relates to what they think the customer journey is?
0: Yeah, and there's a couple of things here. I think customer journeys are have become sort of very trendy and there's hundreds of conference rooms all over the world where people are sticking post-its on the wall to understand or to, to, to sort of define the customer journey. Well, and
2: that's not a bad thing. Not
0: at all. Please, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't mean to, to, to say that at all. Yeah. Um, I, uh, my favorite example of this is actually Emirates Airlines, whom we had as a, as a keynote speaker several years ago. They were actually featured in former colleagues of mine book called Outside In, which is all about customer experience. Mm-hmm. And Emirates built a, I think it was a 100-foot by 30-foot walk-on customer journey. And the reason for that was they have employees that speak more than 100 languages, and, and this was a way to sort of for everyone to, to, to follow the journey, but quite, quite literally, put yourself in your customer's shoes and follow that journey. Now, they looked at things like, where are the stress points in someone's journey? From the moment someone decides they're going to travel till they come home, where are the stress points? And they, they went to the extreme of having people wear a heart rate monitor and looking at the biometric response to travel and what was really interesting was the security desk and oh what was the other i think waiting on bags or something two things that they themselves had no control over were the two areas that you saw a significant spike in in sort of heart rate and discomfort with the with the entire process sort of thing but the point here is that they went to this effort as many companies do to understand the journey where we sort of feel it falls down a little is then it goes back to sort of the cohort marketing because most companies that invest in customer experience, and I even asked the gentleman on stage uh, this question from Emirates sort of, you know, so you know which cohort I fit into, but how do you know me and what's different about me and what I want in the moment? And he sort of said, well, that's the next step. And they may be there today because it was several years ago that I interacted with them. But the point here is that customer journey and understanding it is really important. Understanding those friction points in relationship is critical but then recognizing that behind that there is also, there are individuals and not just cohorts that are following this this journey that you also have no control over. So that's the second element, that I think a lot of companies who build this then assume that they get to decide where the consumer is in the journey and they get to try to move the consumer from one stage in that journey to the next stage in the journey. And we have no control, the consumers are in control. Mm-hmm. I mentioned Disney earlier, they don't have a CRM team, they have a CMR team, and it's a customer managed relationship team. And their whole point is that the customer manages the relationship and we have to adapt to that. And mm. so you know, they have a mission that's know me and be relevant and they, their goal is to understand the consumer at any given point of time to know what to do next. Mm. And so when you start to take that mindset everything changes. We go back to that. That's a classic consumer-first approach. And they they excel, frankly, at this. And it shows in so many ways, big and small inside that organization.
2: Right. And that brings to mind the idea of companies have a sales process, but mm, very often that's not the buying process that their customer has. And they don't like having somebody try to force them into your selling process. And a lot of very smart companies have started to, to realize that they don't actually have the control they used to in the sales process when perhaps they controlled a lot of the information that the customer uh, really had to get.
0: Yeah. The need for us to adapt to consumers is as strong as it's ever been and is only going to get stronger. One of the case studies in the book is Indochino, who make bespoke men's clothing. Mm-hmm and i have a couple of their suits and it's an unbelievable experience and our last chapter we had some fun and we made some bold predictions about the future and one of them was that we're going to move to this sort of bespoke economy that Mm -hmm. so much of what we buy will become dictated by us and tailored by the company and then whatever it might be several months ago, you know, to take this to the extreme of a company that I never would have have used as an example of imagine if this would happen, it would be an example. McDonald's went out and bought a company called dynamic yield, which is a software that allows for personalization on menus and so you think down to that level of company is starting to realize that they need to be able to deliver exactly what the customer wants when they want it on the customer's terms and not you can have it any color you want as long as it's black
2: yes and uh, someone who recently bought a couple of suits and you know it was it was a pain going forward i'm only i'm only going to indochino there you go <laughs> that's everything you described it was like oh gosh you know it wasn't a terrible experience but it was just it was just a pain yeah and you know trying to get it to fit correctly and trying to find what i wanted and having to deal with a salesperson mm-hmm. it, uh, not a good salesperson so dave if readers took only one thing away from the book what would you hope it would
0: be Apart from, obviously, the concept of the book around this notion of consumer-first marketing and understanding the entitled consumer, my advice is don't wait. You don't have to do all this at once. And if, if I could condense it, I'd sort of say adjust your mindset and embrace the customer's entitlement. Um, it's not going away. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we, we sort of say entitled is obviously a little bit pejorative or could be perceived as pejorative. We think it's a good thing. You know, we think it's something that companies should actually lean into. And that's how you're going to win that arms race. Mm -hmm. And so that would be what I would say is, and you don't have to. So look, I've mentioned Disney a couple of times. Disney spent a billion dollars on a program they called Next Generation Experience. And it manifested itself in the, the wristbands and a lot of changes inside the parks and all these kinds of things. But Tom Boyles, who used to run that CMR department I talked about, would sort of say, you guys are looking at me and saying, this is easy because I can call on everything from Mickey Mouse to Johnny Depp and tug at your heartstrings. Uh, you know, it's such an emotional connection. And his answer was, I grew up in banking. And what's more emotionally important than the roof over my family's head? We give out loans or that you're having enough money for retirement. We have IRAs, which in America is an investment vehicle. We, we have where are your children going to college and have you enough money for it. We have college funds. And so that's the mindset that comes to it. And then, you know, one of the things that has been most successful at Disney over the last few years is there's a gentleman there that when young, you know, five, six, seven, eight year olds are coming into the parks dressed as princesses, mm-hmm. he goes up and asks them for their autograph. Mm. And these girls are looking at him going, he thinks I'm a princess. And it makes their day. And these parents have spent thousands of dollars getting to Disney, staying in a nice hotel, organizing breakfast with princesses and all this sort of stuff. And what what do they talk about when they go home? Somebody asked for my autograph because they thought I was a, a princess. Or the custodians with the brooms drawing the what they call the toodles, you know, the Mickey Mouse outline with the mop. I mean, there's oh. nothing more ephemeral than that because two or three kids see it. And then it evaporates. But for those two or three kids, it makes their day. Yeah. So you can spend a billion dollars if you have it. Most of us don't. But you can change your mindset. It doesn't cost anything. And yes. then you can get going and you can start to think about what do our customers care about? How do we get more of that in front of them? And what's the quickest, cheapest, and most effective way to do it? And yes. then then you can start to budget around it and figure out what you can afford to do.
2: Right. The secret to getting ahead is getting started, and perfect is the enemy of progress. Exactly. One point, though, Dave, when I went to the Disney park and I was dressed as a princess, (laughs) they called security. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So anyway, I won't be going back there for a while. (laughs) What is one thing the listener can do today to put in action an idea from your book?
0: I would gather a group of people that you think care about the customer. And those people often are going to sit in marketing, but you should also reach outside marketing and frankly, they could be anywhere legal finance it doesn't you know it doesn't matter but people who who care about the customer and start to have this conversation right so start to think about what are we trying to achieve what do we think our customer cares about um, start to to sort of build a group of advocates for the customer and build the case to start to really permeate this throughout the organization and To your point, sort of get started. I think the best way to do that is find your allies internally, start to have the conversation, identify where there's easy wins, and and sort of build from there.
2: Yes, put your evangelism hat on. It's going to be a long journey, but I think just getting started, would, I would think, would get a lot of people excited and energized. So what books have inspired your work and career?
0: Um, It's probably broad, right? So I think I've read any number of... Well, let's
2: include all the Irish
0: authors. uh, Well... um, (laughs) I thought you said working career, yeah. Um, so, so it goes from you know the, as a consultant, I've read all the great consulting books, you know, the profit from the cores and good to greats and all that sort of thing. I'm, um, I'm, I'm fascinated by the sort of very approachable. Business books, like say Switch by the the Heath brothers, you know Dan and Chip mm-hmm. Heath. Yeah. Uh, um, obviously, given the area of the world I focus on in terms of the customer, um, I mentioned um, Don and Martha's One to One Future. I mean that's twenty odd years old, but still seminal in the industry. Mentioning Disney, there's a great book called "Be Our Guest" by the Disney Institute. And then I think you know the other thing. I'm fortunate to have former colleagues and co-author that have written other books that uh, have left an indelible impression. So I mentioned Outside In, um, which which you uh, mentioned in the book too. Yeah, we do. That's right. And Groundswell, which Josh, who co-wrote with us, Josh and and uh, Charlene wrote that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was a real um, that was the book when the when social media was starting to take off. If I'm allowed to curse on here. Uh, Josh's latest book I'll mention is writing without bullshit for anyone who writes, which is all of us. It's a phenomenal, you know, all of us in our career, he's not writing it for authors. He's writing it for anyone who, who has to write for business. It's oh, definitely, wow.
2: that would be a great interview. And I actually have a listener advisory, uh, that I can include at the beginning of the show, which I've had to use for some authors. Oh, there you go. <laughs> um,
0: apologies for that. Um, not you. and then the last one I'll mention, just cause I know you meant you, uh, interviewed, uh, Jason Burby in the past. Yeah. Uh, Does it work? Mm. I, I referenced our emphasis on measurement, but it was actually we were Nick and I were sitting in the audience listening to Jason present when Nick and I turned to each other and said, we need to write a book. So, like I said earlier, we had been having this ongoing conversation and it was listening to Jason who had distilled this great group of things that he had done over the years into these you know, these 10 or 12 things that every company should do that Nick and I looked at each other and said, we need to just stop talking about this and, and write the book. So, that, that's what led to it.
2: Well, I'm glad you did. So, we'll include a link to Jason's interview on the Marketing Book Podcast and uh, at your show's episode show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, and we'll include links to all the books you've mentioned and to your uh, websites and your social. And uh, the listener, if they're listening on uh, whatever their favorite podcast app is, they can just click into this episode and click on the show notes link, and uh, we'll include your LinkedIn profile so that folks can reach out to you and not spam you, but thank you <laughs> for uh, being on the Marketing Book Podcast. The name of the book is Marketing to the Entitled Consumer, How to Turn Unreasonable Expectations into Lasting Relationships. The authors are Dave Franklin, Nick Worth, and Josh Burnoff. Dave, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast.
0: My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me.
2: And that closes the book on episode 245 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Hrefs. To start getting more of the right kind of traffic to your website, start your seven-day trial for just $7 by visiting ahrefs.com, spelled A-H-R-E-F-S dot com. And please join us next time as we welcome William Ammerman to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, The Invisible Brand, Marketing in the Age of Automation, Big Data, and Machine Learning. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Amanda Harrison.
1: feel that we now, in the 21st century, we take technology for granted? Well, yeah, because now we live in an, in an amazing, amazing world, and it's wasted on the, on the crappiest generation of just spoiled idiots that don't care, because this is what people are like now. They got their phone, and they're like, "Uh, it won't... Give it a second! Give... It's going to space! Can you give it a second to get back from space? Is the speed of light it's too true. slow it's for Yeah, yeah. I, was on a, I was on an airplane, and there was internet, high-speed internet on the airplane. That's yes. the newest thing that I know exists. And I'm sitting on the plane, and they go, open up your laptop. You can go on the internet. And it's fast, and I'm watching YouTube clips. It's a, I'm in an airplane. And then it breaks down. And they apologize. The internet's not working. The guy next to me goes, this is bullshit. Like how quickly the world owes him something he knew existed only 10 seconds ago. Right, right. And on planes, (laughs) flying is the worst one because people come back from flights and they tell you their story. And it's like a horror story. It's they act like their flight was like a cattle car in the forties in Germany. That's how bad they make it sound. They're like, it was the worst day of my life. First of all, we didn't board for 20 minutes. Right. And then we get on the plane and they made us sit there on the runway for 40 minutes. We had to sit there. Oh really, what happened next? Did you fly through the air incredibly <laughs> like a bird? Did you partake in the miracle of human flight, you nine contributing zero, but you got to fly? You're flying. It's amazing. Everybody on every plane should just constantly be going, Oh, my God! Wow! Yes. You're flying. You're, you're sitting in a chair in the sky. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm when you drive the brand-ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power, you can stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see yourself behind the wheel of the brand-ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power. Kia, movement that inspires.
0: Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Kia received the fewest reported problems among all brands in the J.D. Power 2022 U.S. Vehicle Dependability Study based on 2019 models. See JDPower.com slash awards for 2022
1: details.